The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club episode, all about Much Ado About Nothing. The title of this play is among quite a few by Shakespeare that have become well-worn turns of phrase in English. We often use this one and All's Well That Ends Well in everyday conversation without much reference to their respective plays. But what has this title, Much Ado About Nothing, got to do with the play? A good deal, as we will discuss. There's a long-standing theory that in Shakespearean English, the words nothing and noting would have been pronounced very similarly. If this is the case, the title can just as easily imply that this is a play that is all about noting. Hearing, noting, listening, and even eavesdropping. And at the same time, it's a whole story that isn't about very much. There's also a much ruder explanation of the play's title, involving a reading of nothing, or an O thing, to refer to female genitalia. This appears in several plays, including Hamlet, but I don't really think Shakespeare was trying to be quite this brazen or this specific in his description and his title of this play. For much of its life, the play has been known just as well by the names of its stars, Beatrice and Benedict. The French composer Berlioz even wrote an opera adaptation of the play, and he named it after the two sparring partners, rather than trying to translate Much Ado About Nothing into French. Beatrice and Benedict are responsible for much of the play's popularity. They are among the wittiest characters in Shakespeare, but also the most vulnerable and relatable. The play is set entirely in Messina, in the aftermath of a war of some sort, when Don Pedro of Aragon and his men arrive and plan to stay with the local gentleman, Leonato. Since this is a comedy, there will need to be some lovers. Conveniently, Leonato has a daughter, Hero, and Don Pedro has a young soldier in his company called Claudio, who will naturally fall in love with Hero. Leonato also has a niece, Beatrice, who at one time in the past had some kind of a liaison with another of the soldiers, Benedict. It doesn't seem to have ended well, and now there is a kind of merry war between them, which leads to terrifically entertaining banter between the pair. For all their sallies and salvos, they are actually less complicated than Claudio and Hero. Claudio is nervous and doesn't quite know how to admit that he has fallen for Hero, let alone how he might make his feelings known and woo her. So Don Pedro volunteers, like an early Cyrano de Bergerac almost, that he will take the opportunity of the masked ball they're planning and he will woo on Claudio's behalf. Much like The Taming of the Shrew, we therefore have two couples, a seemingly uncomplicated younger couple and an older pair who tear comparative strips off each other. In this sunny, carefree location, where nobody seems to have any pressing responsibilities, everything looks set up for a nice Shakespearean comedy. A recent double bill at the Royal Shakespeare Company attempted to market this play as Love's Labour's One, putting paid to a persistent puzzle. In 1598, Francis Mears wrote, in his Wit's Treasury, of a play by Mr Shakespeare called Love's Labour's One. It's a tantalising scrap of information. There's no other record of such a play, no manuscript, no folio, and barely a mention of it anywhere else. 
Since Love's Labour's Lost ends just at the point where everyone might be happy and Much Ado About Nothing begins with reunions and relief at the end of conflict, there has been a persistent temptation to consider Much Ado as this possible Love's Labour's one. The RSC double bill squeezed every drop of potential from this possibility. So Love's Labour's Lost was set in 1914, just as World War I broke out, and Much Ado About Nothing happened in 1918 when it was all over. But the plays remain pretty much absolutely unconnected. And Much Ado is, for my money, a stronger play, because it has rather more of a plot than its predecessor. While both plays share the fizz and crackle of romantic possibility, in the older play, really, it's just a question of when the four couples will declare their love for each other. That's kind of the whole story. In Much Ado, Shakespeare adds a villain to ensure that there actually is a plot. This villain is Don John, the bastard brother of Don Pedro, and about as different from his charming brother as he could possibly be. Don John doesn't have a great deal to say in the story. He announces that he is a man of few words, but he is essential. Amid all of the merriment, he determines that the only way he's going to get through all this insufferable jollity is to mess with people. His first attack is at the masked ball. It's a little peculiar that Don Pedro should try to woo Hero on Claudio's behalf, rather than, say, finding a way for the two young people to have a conversation. The play is infinitely more concerned with the relationships between the various men than with the young woman's point of view. Indeed, poor Hero is almost maddeningly underwritten. In the spotlight, we have Don Pedro's friendly relationship with Leonato, the two senior gentlemen, and the arrangement made for Claudio to marry Leonato's daughter. We have the relationship between Don Pedro and his soldier Claudio, the older man stepping in to help out and broker this marriage for this excellent young soldier. And then Don John steps in. He finds Claudio at the masked ball, presumably while Don Pedro is wooing Hero, and Don John pretends to think that Claudio is Benedict, proceeding to tell him that Don Pedro is wooing Hero for himself. Claudio now throws a huge strop, and it takes Beatrice at her most charming to bring him back and set things right when everything is happily arranged. In the meantime, Beatrice has likewise pretended not to know Benedict and given him a very funny dressing down. The party and the play might end here, with a wedding now arranged, but Leonato insists that Claudio and Hero must wait a few nights before they can be married. Since there's now time to kill, a plot develops. The men will contrive to make Benedict think that Beatrice is in love with him, while the ladies pull a similar prank on Beatrice. Their sparring is such that we all know that eventually they should end up together because they are seemingly perfect for each other. We're set up for a good deal of noting. The scenes of these two defiantly anti-romantic, cynical singletons overhearing these tales of love about themselves are endlessly charming. If everyone wasn't quite so carried away with the romance of it all, someone might actually have asked why on earth Don John poured such poison into Claudio's ear at the dance, and indeed why Claudio believed it, but this doesn't seem to be a concern. Don John is fuming at his foiled plans, but his henchmen, Conrad and Boraccio, cook up another wicked plan to cheer him up. This trio of charmers make a plan whereby Boraccio will appear at a window with his girlfriend, Margaret, and make it seem like Margaret is hero. 
Nobody really has done anything wrong. There's no particular motivation for revenge or anything. All of this is just done for the sheer spite and hell of it. As Beatrice and Benedict are being gulled into love, Claudio and Don Pedro are both seduced into believing that Hero is completely unfaithful. All from something they overhear outside someone's window late at night. Shakespeare doesn't even put this on the stage. Again, while all of this is developing, nobody seems to have the common sense to talk about things, so much as taking everything as read and assuming the very worst at all points when they overhear or note something. Things are allowed to proceed as far as the wedding, and at it Claudio really loses the run of himself. He attacks Hero quite savagely, tearing the place apart with one of the sourest, angriest speeches in all of Shakespeare. He joins the ranks of Troilus, Hamlet and many other angry young men who rant and rail about the inconstancy of women, and like all of his comrades in this, he will be proved entirely wrong by the end of the play. At this point, the wedding is obviously abandoned, and with just a few people left surrounding the wronged hero, our attention turns to Friar Francis, a considerably more effective cleric than his compatriot Friar Lawrence in Romeo and Juliet. This friar has rather better advice. Rather like Portia in The Merchant of Venice, he suggests at this key moment in Act 4 that everyone take a small pause and listen for a moment. He has an idea. They'll hide Hero away and tell everyone she's dead, in the hope that this dramatic device will shame whoever has wronged her and that her good name can be restored. After the passion of this wretched wedding, Benedict and Beatrice find themselves alone in the chapel and find themselves reluctantly admitting their love for each other. One of the play's biggest surprises is Beatrice's answer when her beau asks her to name anything she'd like him to do for her. Her response, dead serious in the moment, kill Claudio. Beatrice's frustration at not being a man and therefore somehow incapable of challenging Claudio in his outrageous wrongness is passionately described. Oh, that I were a man, she cries. I would eat his heart in the marketplace. She manages to convince Benedict to challenge Claudio and he agrees to keep the secret that Hero isn't actually dead. All of this messy behaviour has been dragging the mood of this Italian comedy towards potential tragedy, but there's one further group of characters to appear. The Watch. Since it got rather darker at night back then, watchmen were employed to keep an eye on the streets, but given how ineffective they tend to be in Shakespeare's plays and elsewhere, we can imagine that perhaps they weren't always the brightest sparks. In this play, they are deliberately hopeless, led by Dogberry, one of the most gloriously inarticulate characters in all of Shakespeare. I think the Watchmen are so dim-witted precisely because it's all the funnier that it's them that uncover the wicked plots. They overhear Don John's thugs laughing about their scheme to shame Hero, and they arrest them and bring the story to Leonato. All is revealed, Claudio is thoroughly chastened, and all might be forgiven if only Hero wasn't dead. Conveniently enough, Leonato's brother, Antonio, suggests that he too has a daughter, very similar to Hero, nudge nudge, wink wink. They insist that if Claudio is prepared to marry her sight unseen, all can be forgiven. When you start pulling at the threads of the story, they do seem rather suspicious, but the plan is agreed. 
Another wedding will take place, and this time all of the women of the household, perhaps even Margaret, who either doesn't know what happened or is keeping a very tight lip. All of the women appear veiled, and Claudio is presented with his new bride. It is, of course, his beloved, apparently not dead, hero. She died, my lord, but whilst her slander lived. They will now, of course, be united and live happily ever after. If, perhaps, Claudio has managed to learn the lesson that he shouldn't believe everything he hears or notes without at least speaking with his long-suffering wife first. Next, it's Benedict's turn, and he mans up and asks in front of everyone which of the veiled beauties might be Beatrice. They have a final skirmish of wit, each trying to insist that they're only showing signs of love now because they heard the other was dying of love for them, so to keep them alive they will persist. Finally, the pair happen upon the only way to make the other stop talking. A kiss. There are two strands of imagery that always strike me as particularly present in this play. Clothing and dancing. They almost feel like an invitation. The way people dress in this world is particularly important. Even when Benedict likens Beatrice to the Greek goddess of spite, Ate, he qualifies it. She's Ate in good apparel. Clothing is important throughout, and so when Friar Francis insists that the idea of Hero being dead will cure Claudio of his rashness, this idea of her will come apparelled in more precious habit, more moving, delicate and full of life than when she lived indeed. There's a huge amount for a costume designer to find in this play. As for the dancing, there's even more of that. There's a masked ball at the beginning, and at the end, Benedict insists, we'll have a dance ere we are married, that we may lighten our own hearts and our wives' heels. Metaphors of dancing appear throughout. Benedict worries that when men fall in love, they become dancers instead of soldiers. And Beatrice insists that the various key moments of wooing, wedding and repenting are no more complicated than a Scottish jig, a measure and a syncopace. Everything is dance. No surprise that it should be so with her. She gets one of the most beautiful self-descriptions in all literature. There was a star danced, and under that was I born. She's glorious. Just before the pipers strike up for that final dance, word arrives that Don John, who had run away, has happily been arrested, but he will be dealt with tomorrow. Don John, it is announced, was author of all. This is quite an accurate description, since it's his interventions that extend the play to a full-length drama. Much is made of women's chastity and purity and the dangers of extramarital sex, and indeed much is made of Don John being a bastard, in both the antiquated and more contemporary meanings of the word. If bastards like him are the result of dangerous liaisons outside of wedlock, one might start to understand the crazed anger that Claudio shows at the mere mention of Hero being with another man before they're married. The world has mostly moved on from such punishing moralities, but the play still relies on very strict opinions of how good girls should behave. All of this noting, listening, hearing, overhearing, mishearing, and of course whispering of gossip, rumour and lies, for good or for ill, are all woven into a very variegated tapestry. These days, I think we need to add even more eavesdropping if the play is going to make any sense. If a production can't find a way to let Hero spy on or overhear just how sorry and ashamed Claudio becomes, 
it is very hard to understand why she'd agree to take him back. Such an intervention would fit the title and the overall structure of the story, and of course it can be done without any words. For my money, it's a rather essential addition to the play and a means of undoing the havoc wrought by its taciturn villain. Don John is one of Shakespeare's impressive rogues, but he's only a trickster when compared with one of the most spectacular baddies in all of the plays, Iago in Othello. Don John is, in many ways, a prototype for Iago, and so that will be our play for next week's episode. I do hope you found some joy in revisiting this sparkling play this week. I certainly have. If not, treat yourself. We could all do with a little bit of theatrical joy right now. If you have access to it, the recent Shakespeare in the Park production was available on PBS earlier in the year, and it's one of the best contemporary Shakespeare's I've ever seen. Hopefully it might still be available somewhere online. The Kenneth Branagh film starring Emma Thompson is always a tonic, and there is a wealth of other productions you can choose from. If you happen to be missing the Greek plays and their world, I'd like to let you know of a new project I've developed which will launch in a couple of weeks as part of Dublin's Theatre Festival this year. It's all about Aeschylus' play The Persians, and you can find more information about that at persiansthepodcast.com. I hope you'll check it out, and in the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, wash your hands, wear your mask, and I'll speak to you next time.